All right. It's been a while, so uh, we're a little bit out of practice. Feels like it's been forever. But here we are standing together. Uh, let's recite our verse uh, for the month that hopefully you've been practicing on your own. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Hebrews 2.1. Very good. You can be seated. Uh, before we jump in, I want to urge you guys to be here next week. Um, as Justin will be bringing the word for us, uh, my family will be uh, going to New York for a few days, so I am delighted to leave you in Justin's capable hands, so do not miss that. So today uh, we're beginning a brand new series entitled Worthful, and in this series we'll be w walking through uh, the book of Ephesians, and we're going to do this in six weeks. And that is actually the fastest that I have ever walked through a book of the Bible. Um, and so this series will be both topical and exegetical. And through the letter of uh, the Ephesians by the Apostle Paul, we're going to examine how our limitless worth is found in our identity in Jesus Christ. I was recently asked the question, how I come up with the ideas for my sermon series. And I said that sometimes I'm inspired by what I feel like our church needs to hear based on what they're going through in their lives. And that's one of the differences between a preacher and a pastor. A preacher is someone who gets up and preaches a text, which a pastor does as well. But being a pastor adds the element of actually walking with their people, knowing what their people are going through and feeling and experiencing and needing. So sometimes these messages are inspired by the needs of the people. And sometimes the messages are inspired by what I need personally, what, what I need to learn from Scripture. Lest you ever believe that I am unlike you, uh, I want you to understand that sometimes the things that I am standing up here teaching so confidently are things that I desperately need for myself. And I'm preaching these things just as hard to me as I am to anybody else. And then there's times when there's something that I feel like the people need to hear and I also need to hear. And that is where this series is coming from. Uh, I think that this is something that all of us need. And not just in general. In a general sense, yes, this is all something that we need. But I mean specifically for us right now, knowing what you're going through and what I'm going through, I feel like this is something in this moment uh, that is valuable to us. We all need to hear today, right now, in this season of life, about our worth in Jesus. By and large, though it is not lexically necessary, we typically connect worth and merit together. In other words, we almost always view worth as something that is earned. We don't typically view worth as an intrinsic quality. Instead, we, we view it as an extrinsic measure of attained value. So practically what that means is that a person's worth is defined by what they do or don't do in order to make themselves worthy, which means that there are external measures that we use to calculate one's worth. And those measures include things like social status, achievements, earned titles, clout, the respect of others, contributions to society, wealth, attractiveness, success, respectability, etc. 
And if a person excels in those areas, they are viewed as a person of worth. And they feel in themselves a sense of self-worth. But then what happens when someone fails in any of those areas? Well, they no longer view themselves as valuable. Others no longer view them as worthy. When you feel like you don't meet the measurables, or even as though you've never have, then your worth plummets. Thus, worth is almost always calculated in comparison with other people. It is a social hierarchy with constantly moving positions and constantly changing forms of measurement. But what if we have it all wrong? What if a person's worth is fixed, unaffected by their decisions, or their relationship to others? What if it is intrinsic rather than extrinsic? That's what I aim to show in this series. And there's a reason why I named this series Worthful rather than Worthy. Um, worthful is not a word, at least not according to the spell checker on my computer. Uh, but I chose that made-up word because it doesn't have the same baggage that the word worthy carries. It doesn't ask the same confusing questions. Let me ask you this. Um, are you worthy of God's love? It's a hard one, right? Depends on how you answer the question. Because in one sense, you might say, well, of course not. Nobody is. No one is worthy of God's love. But what do we mean when we say that? When we, what we mean is that no person is capable of earning God's love by way of their goodness or their merit. In that sense, we're not worthy of God's love. But on the other hand, we absolutely are worthy of God's love because He's the one who sets our worth in the first place. Scripture tells us to walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ. So, in that sense, you absolutely can and should be worthy. So it's a loaded question to ask, are you worthy? Worthy can mean different things in different contexts. But there's only one thing that worthful can mean. It means to be full of worth. And that is the key. No matter what you do, no matter what has been done to you, no matter who you are, no matter what extrinsic measurables you meet or don't meet, what family you come from, how successful or unsuccessfully you have followed the Lord up to this point, how good of a husband or wife or father or mother or brother or sister or son or daughter you are, literally no matter what, you are full of worth. Full to the brim. Full to overflowing. You matter. You've mattered to God for eternity past, and your life and your calling, no matter what it is, always have and always will matter, regardless of anything anyone says or does. Um, raise your hand if at any point in your life you have ever felt worthless. Pretty much all of us. Me too. In fact, if I can be honest with you, I'm currently in a season in my life right now where I'm battling against those feelings on a regular basis. My aim is to 
arm us with scriptural truths that will give us firepower to fight against those feelings. As you'll see later on in the series, we are in a spiritual war every single moment of every single day. And we have an enemy, a real enemy, who is doing everything he possibly can to rob you of your sense of self-worth in Christ so that he can give you a vast array of carrots to chase. Carrots, of course, that you will never actually catch. And the enemy will whisper lie after lie into your soul, poisoning your perspective, causing you to compare yourself to others, and losing sight of the truth of who you are in Jesus. And so I want to give us a firm foundation to stand upon. I want to give us specific places to go in the Bible when these questions start to plague our minds. I want to help you and help myself to stop chasing the carrots. Is it hot in here or Mm -hmm. is it just me? Yeah, it It is burning hot in here. I want you to know, I want this to be on record, that an hour ago I tried to adjust the thermostat. Okay? I'm not sure why it isn't working. But I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't me. So, in his book, Soul Cravings, Erwin McManus said this, The reason we struggle with insignificance, the reason we fight to accomplish something, the reason we aspire and dream and risk, is that God creates us with an intrinsic desire to become. The problem is that intrinsic desire has become poisoned. And the passion to accomplish, the passion to achieve, the passion to do great things, which are all very good, those things become the basis for our identity instead of the result of our identity. And we believe that if we just do enough, then we'll finally have value. If we accomplish the right things, we'll be satisfied. If we can achieve a certain level of status, of significance, of world difference, it's at that point that we will finally matter. Um, In the movie Pearl Harbor, lousy movie, by the way, Uh, you don't have to see it, but don't worry, I won't ruin the ending for you. Uh, One of the American pilots in this movie is played by Ben Affleck. And in part of the film, he is sent to fly some missions for the English Royal Air Force. And he eagerly jumps to get on his first mission, and the RAF commander is stunned and says, are all Yanks this anxious to die? And so with his signature jaw jutted out like he always does, he just says, not anxious to die, anxious to matter. I'm Ben Affleck. (laughs) Now cheesy as that line might be, it speaks to something that is true in all of us, and that is we are anxious to matter. And we believe that the more we accomplish, the more we will matter. But as someone like Tom Brady would tell you, accomplishing more doesn't ease the ache. Because when he was interviewed after his fourth Super Bowl, he said, I ask myself, is this all there really is? Or how about this for perspective? Listen to the words of Madonna, one of the most accomplished artists in music history. She said, I have an iron will. And my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it to discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre or uninteresting. My drive in life is from a horrible fear of being mediocre. 
And that's something that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. By the world's standards, I doubt that any of us in this room will accomplish more than Tom Brady or Madonna, though it is possible, and I cheer you on towards it. And yet, with all of their accomplishments, they are still anxious to matter. So if we can never compare our successes or our talents or our wealth or our looks or our whatever to famous people like this, then how will we ever know that we are worthful? It's by taking our eyes off of extrinsic measurements and seeing what has always been the truth, that because of Jesus, you are infinitely worthful. And when your identity is found in that, you'll never have to chase anything else. So, turning your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And we'll be looking today at chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you, don't, if you don't have your Bible, the words will be behind me on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's just stop here for, for just a moment before we read any further. Stop here and note that Paul begins this letter by saying that he is an apostle by the will of God. He didn't earn this. And elsewhere he makes it very clear that he calls himself the least of all of God's apostles, the greatest of all sinners. He didn't earn this. He was not given this calling by value of merit. God put a calling on his life because God decided to do that. And that is the same truth for every one of us. It is not our merit that earns us a special calling in life or a lack of merit that causes us to have a lousy calling in life. It is the loving will of a perfect, wise God that says, I have created you for this. Walk in the beauty of this. Continuing on. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Um, can you maybe try propping the back doors open and get some airflow in here? <laughs> So, let's, um, let's first talk about some background um, in the book of Ephesians. In Acts chapter 19, we read the story about when Paul planted the church in Ephesus. He met there with some believers who had been baptized by John the Baptist and had at that point not yet experienced the Holy Spirit. And so Paul spent three years which, interestingly, is the longest he ever spent ministering in one place, spent three years in the city of Ephesus ministering to these believers, doing miracles in healing, teaching in the synagogue, and strengthening the leadership of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, as a city, was an incredibly influential place in the ancient world. It was a mecca. It, it was a cultural melting pot. And it was the center of idolatry in the ancient world. Um, interestingly, in the city of Ephesus, we find one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which is the temple to Artemis. Artemis was the goddess that the Ephesians centered their entire lives around. And, and people from all over the ancient world would travel to Ephesus to worship at the temple of Artemis. But Artemis wasn't the only goddess worshipped there. There were, in fact, dozens of gods and goddesses that were worshipped there. And every person from every culture that came and, and joined into this melting pot brought with them their own gods. And so people would pick and choose, and, and any one person could be worshipping dozens of idols all at once. You might say that these people were anxious to matter. It was their practice to perform religious rituals and do things so that the gods would love them, so that the gods would accept them. And Paul, in this church in Ephesus, created this movement that was so powerful in the city, and so many people were coming to know the Lord, that it was causing a, a rupture in the economy. Because as all of these people were coming to know Christ, the idolatry economy was being affected. Because the silversmiths and the blacksmiths, whose trade was making these household gods that people would buy, were having fewer and fewer people buying their wares. And so the blacksmiths rioted in Acts chapter 19. And, and you can read the story there where they caused a, an uproar in the city and the whole Colosseum there filled up with over 20,000 people. And for hours they chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And as a result of that riot, Paul, for the safety of the, the church there, um, leaves uh, Ephesus in the hands of their leaders. 
six years later, towards the end of Paul's life, he's imprisoned in Rome. And it's from there, at the end of his life, that he pens this letter to the Ephesians, telling them specifically, in their cultural moment, in a place where all they did was do in order to matter, in that cultural moment, Paul addresses their spiritual worth and blessings in Christ. So let's jump in with point number one. You are full of worth because it was worth it to make you. You are full of worth because it was worth it to make you. You probably noticed that in this chapter, there is one of the most loaded words in all of the Bible. The word predestined comes up over and over. For example, and even if the word isn't used, the idea, in, in verse 2, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Um, over and over, this idea is used. This idea that we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And uh, I don't want to spend our entire time this evening going into the weeds of predestination um, because it is one of the most controversial theological topics out there. And I want to emphasize that good Christians disagree on this. So if you're one of those people that says, I don't believe you, that's fine. Let's have a conversation about it afterwards. Um, where I went to school, there was this running joke that you were never further than a stone's throw away from a Calvinism versus Arminianism debate. And really, that was true. Everywhere you walked, you could see two people intensely arguing, and you already knew what it was about. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about some hot-button issue. You could just look and go, those two guys are arguing about Calvinism. It was everywhere. So again, I don't want to spend all night on this, but clearly we can't ignore it. It's all over the text. It's centered on this idea. So here is my attempt to communicate what I believe this word means in a simpler way. And if you want to take a deeper dive on this, feel free to read up on Molinism. But here's the simple version of it. Typically, this debate pits God's foreknowledge and man's free will against one another. One says, you were predestined by God. He chose you. You didn't choose him. And the other side says, we are not robots. We have free will. And scripture makes it very clear that we're, we're held responsible for the choices that we make, positively or negatively, and we're commanded to choose to follow after him. So, lots of time is spent with these two sides warring against each other. Did God choose, or did you choose? My answer is, yes. Yes. God chose, and... You chose. You are predestined by God, and you possess the agency of free will. Those things are very clearly stated in this and plenty of other texts. 
But how can that be true? How can both of these seemingly opposite ideas be true at the same time? Because before God created anything, God was omniscient. And omniscient means all-knowing. And part of being all-knowing includes what theologians refer to as middle knowledge. Middle knowledge. That means that not only does God know what will happen in the future, He also knows everything that could happen. He knows all of the infinite possibilities in any given scenario. And what I believe makes the most sense is that God essentially drives the butterfly effect. Anybody ever see that movie, The Butterfly Effect? Anyone? No one? Gosh, that was a fascinating movie like 20 years ago. Anyway, that's part of your homework. If you're not familiar with The Butterfly Effect, it's a philosophical um, idea that states that if you were to get into a time machine and go back at any point in history, and if you were to change anything, even the smallest detail, so small, even down to the flapping of a butterfly's wings, that change, whatever it is, would dramatically affect and alter the rest of the history that comes after it. Any small change dramatically affects an infinite number of things in the future. So there's an infinite number of things that are all happening at once that are all dominoes that fall in order to make history happen. So before God began human history, He knew all of the infinite butterfly effects that would result in an infinite number of possible futures. And in His perfect knowledge, He chose to actualize the one that would lead to the salvation of every possible person that would freely choose to follow Jesus. His desire was that all would come to know Him, but he knew that many would reject him, no matter what. But to all who would come, he provided the opportunity. So here's what that means for us. God looked down the barrel of time, saw you, and he already intimately knew your heart in the most loving way. Paul, elsewhere in Romans, adds to this idea the word for knowledge, where he says, those he foreknew, he also predestined. And what does that word mean? What does foreknow means? It means that he doesn't just know facts. It means that he has relational knowledge. In the English language, the word know can be applied in a bunch of different ways, to relational and non-relational ways. I know a lot of information about Notre Dame football. I know how to read. I don't know how to do math. I know my wife. Wink, wink. Same word, very different meanings according to context. But in the Greek and Hebrew, there are different words that are used for the word know. And these words are specific to facts or relationships. So when it says that he foreknew you, it means that before he created you, he already knew everything about you, but he also already knew you relationally. He already loved you. Paul says it very clearly here in verse 4 and 5. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that's when it's happening, before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then it says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Before we were ever here, he loved us already. Mom's in the room. I'm willing to bet you already understand this concept. When you were pregnant, you couldn't wait to meet that little baby, right? And in those months of pregnancy, did you ever put your hand on your stomach and say something like, I already love you so much, even though I don't even know you yet? Before you ever got to hold that baby, before that baby was ever screaming at you, you already loved that baby. Now imagine if you could put your hand to your stomach and close your eyes and see that child's entire future. Your love for them would be infinitely more powerful. And when that baby is born and you speak to it and you say, Hi, little one, I'm mommy, and I know everything about you, and I love you. I always have, and I always will. That's a snippet, I think, of what it means that God foreknew us. Before we were born, he held us in his hand and said, I already love you. So what the theological concept of middle knowledge says is that God acted on his prehistory love by seeing all the possible things that could come to pass. And he did the math and figured out exactly what it would take to bring you to a place where you would freely choose him. And then he made that happen. Because he foreknew you, God chose you. And yet, you also chose him. I do want to emphasize here that anyone who's never surrendered to Jesus should not say, well, I guess I don't really have any choice in the matter, then do I? God is just going to choose if he so chooses. right? Some people might respond to this with an attitude that says, you know what, I'm just going to live however I want. Because if God chose me before I was ever created, then at some point I'm, I'm going to come to my senses and I'm going to repent. So I might as well have fun and live it up now. I would encourage you to think about this. If you were living paycheck to paycheck, anyone can imagine that, right? If you were living paycheck to paycheck, but you had a very rich relative who would give you a job that would pay you a billion dollar salary as soon as you asked for it, how long would you wait to ask? Would you say, I don't want to work for him. I want to continue to struggle to pay my bills. Now, we're assuming in this analogy that your relative is going to be a really kind and gracious boss, not a jerk, right? You wouldn't wait to ask. You would say, sign me up for that job, Uncle Scrooge McDuck, right now. Why would you want to wait to live any longer in this world without the riches of glorious grace? Why would you subject yourself to that when you have all the richness of his blessings? That would be crazy. More on that in a few moments. But let me get back to the heart of this point. If you're anything like me, you battle against feelings of worthlessness. And part of the reason that you battle those feelings is because you think that you don't measure up to something or someone And that something is different for everyone. Every one of us has some arbitrary ideal of what it looks like to be a person of worth. And 
many of us also have a specific person that embodies that ideal that we compare ourselves to. If you think that being a worthful person means having courage and valor and the respect of your peers, then perhaps you would view a, a military hero as your ideal. If it's about being successful and influential, then maybe you would look at a celebrity as an ideal. Maybe your ideal looks like a perfect mom on Instagram. Or maybe it looks like that friend from high school who effortlessly got the grades, the girls, and the great job. Can I tell you what it looks like for me? If I'm being honest, it looks like my friend Trevor. Trevor planted a church with a very small group a number of years ago. And now that church has hundreds of members. Hundreds of people that they've led to Jesus and baptized. Multiple services. They raised tens of thousands of dollars for community service. And now they're breaking ground to build their own building. And Trevor is the best Bible teacher, the best preacher I have ever heard. I'm sure, like me, all of you have listened to famous preachers preaching sermons. The best speakers in the world, right? Trevor is better than those guys. And I don't just say that because he's my friend. I say that because it's true. Anyone who's listened to any of his sermons can nod and say, the man's amazing. Am I right, Nicole? She's listened to some of those. He's better than any preacher of any megachurch. So what do I do? I compare myself to Trevor. If I'm being really honest with you guys, I find myself trying to emulate Trevor. Trevor manuscripts his sermons. Maybe I should try that. Trevor's sermons have creative titles with engaging stories. Maybe I should try that. Trevor preaches for an hour. Maybe I should try that. <laughs> Sorry, guys, this is Trevor's fault, all right? The length of my sermons is because of him, so I just want you to know. Now, I can tell you for a fact that Trevor would recoil if he were here listening. And he'd definitely say, emulate Jesus, not me because Trevor is a really good Christian. <laughs> and I think it's fine that I've learned things from him, right? Good things, things that work. But God didn't call me to be Trevor. He called me to be me. God doesn't view me as a person of worth so long as I accomplish the things that Trevor does. I'm worthful because God foreknew me and foreloved me and predestined me to be adopted as his son. Most of you can probably think pretty easily about the person that you might compare yourself to most often. If you need help doing some self-examination, I'll give you a clue. Your ideal is always tied to your insecurities. We're going to spend a lot of time in week three talking about that, but for now, let me say this. Paul makes it very clear that God chose you. He loved you enough to adopt you. Before the foundation of the world, God said, I will literally move heaven and earth and do whatever I need to do in order to adopt Nicole as my daughter. Before he created anything, 
God knew exactly what 50 trillion things he would have to do throughout thousands of years in human history in order to reach Justin. And he said, I'm going to do that for sure. You don't have to do anything in order to have worth. You don't have to earn it with any kind of merit. You don't have to stack up favorably with other people or accomplish what they accomplish. You fully matter now because you fully mattered before you were even born. And you are swimming in a sea of gold coins of worth. Here's point number two. Our inheritance in Christ is impossible to quantify, and so is our worth. Our inheritance in Christ is impossible to quantify, and so is our worth. Raise your hand if you ever watched the show DuckTales. Yes, DuckTales was one of my favorite shows as a kid. I love that show. Huey, Dewey, and Louie are Donald Duck's nephews, and they go and live with their great uncle, Scrooge McDuck, when Donald joins the Navy. And Scrooge McDuck is stupid rich, like way, way rich. In the opening credits of the show, as well as in many other scenes throughout the series, we see McDuck's money tower. It's this big rectangular building with a dollar sign on the front of it. He calls it his money bin. And on the inside of the money bin is a large vault. And that vault is filled with gold coins. In one of the funnier elements of this visual, visual, Scrooge McDuck can often be seen in a bathing suit, diving headfirst into his pile of money and swimming around in it. The physics of that, of course, are unique to the cartoon universe, but the point is clear. McDuck has enough money to swim in. Did you know that there have been multiple attempts by various publications to quantify Scrooge McDuck's net worth. The cartoons never give us a clear picture of what his wealth is in real dollars. In, in one episode, Scrooge's accountant notes that the money bin contains five multiplugillion, nine impossibillion, seven fantastic a trillion dollars, and 16 cents. Okay? Great. But what does that mean for real? In 2007, Forbes offered an attempt and calculated his net worth to be $28.8 billion. They then revised that estimate in 2011 due to the rise in gold prices and said that it was $44 billion. But come on, that's incredibly low. And they didn't really do a deep dive into this. And at that amount, he wouldn't even be the fifth richest person in the world at that number, okay? So, earlier this week, I spent 20 hilarious minutes watching a video on YouTube that thoroughly entertained throughout. The channel Film Theory put together what I think is probably the most scientific deep dive possible, examining McDuck's money bin. And they used four different methodologies to calculate the volume of gold 
contained in the money bin. The first way that they did this was that they said in one episode, blueprints were provided. And the blueprints show the money bin. And so they calculated according to the blueprints, the measurements therein, how much gold would fit inside. The second uh, way that they did that is uh, in the opening credits, there's an image that contains the money bin. And in that image over in the corner, there's a depth gauge with numbers and lines on it. Problem is, that gauge doesn't have a metric. It has lines and numbers like a ruler, but it doesn't say if that's in feet, in inches, in yards. So what do they do? Well, they found another episode which lists Scrooge McDuck's height in feet and inches. And they took the image of Scrooge McDuck, and there's the corner, and they superimposed it over so that they could figure out exactly how much each one of those lines was worth. And according to that, they calculated how much volume is in the money bin. Similarly, their third way of measuring is the ladder that Scrooge McDuck uses. They superimposed his image over the rungs of the ladder so that they could figure out exactly how many rungs go down into the bin, and then that would give them a calculation of the size of that bin. And finally, their fourth measurement was a quote from Scrooge McDuck, in which he said that the bin is three cubic acres. Now the problem is that cubic acres is a nonsensical term because that would be four-dimensional, and we live in a three-dimensional world. But just for fun, they calculated what that would be anyway. And armed with those numbers, and the price of gold meticulously converted into troy ounces, they calculated the following numbers for Scrooge McDuck's net worth. From least to most, they were just over $52.3 billion, just over $239 billion, $12.4 trillion, and $333 trillion, which would be more than all of the money contained in all of the entire world, okay? Watch the video, all right? It's awesome. The video then noted that this is only the money in the money bin, right? So that doesn't factor in any of Scrooge McDuck's other assets, real estate, business, etc. So without a doubt, this is the richest fictional character in history. And Justin, I know what you're thinking. Yes, even richer than Smaug, who has his own pile of money. McDuck's pile of money is larger by volume. And even though Smaug's pile contains other valuables like gems and rare artifacts, Smaug does not also run a multi-trillion dollar business or own real estate or have a diversified portfolio. So, now, armed with that image of McDuck's money bin and the incomprehensible worth therein, let's, with that in our imagination, read some of the words that Paul uses in verses 3 through 14. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which, verse 8, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he gave us the Holy Spirit, in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. These are very clear and consistent terms describing innumerable wealth. We're talking spiritual worth that you cannot comprehend. Every spiritual, every spiritual blessing in the heaven, heavenly places, every our inheritance in Jesus is given to us according to the riches of his grace. And he takes those riches and he lavishes it upon us. The, the Greek word for lavish means to superabound, to overflow, like a river flooding over the bounds of its banks. It means to be present in a way that the given space is unable to contain. This is not just a generous portion. This is a pitcher pouring into a cup and pouring and pouring and pouring even as the cup overflows and overflows and continuing to pour and continuing to pour. It's McDuck money. It's impossible to quantify. When Paul talks about spiritual blessings, that means so many things according to the scriptures. In context here, Paul is talking about our adoption as sons and daughters. The sin debt that has been forgiven that we could never pay ourselves. The value of his life given for us. The grace that he pours out on us. The spiritual power that he gives us in order to live the life that we were created to live. Hope, joy, peace. An eternity filled in a perfect paradise, filled to overflowing with every good thing. Well, listen, right now, today, we live in brokenness, don't we? Right now, in many ways, you have been sinned against by other people. You've been told in a dozen different ways how you don't measure up. You're looking at other people's Instagram feed and seeing how far short you fall. Maybe somebody has sinned against you so deeply and so personally that you were reeling, having lost all sense of self-worth. Or maybe you're on the other side of that. And you're the one that sinned greatly. You've sinned against others. You've sinned against yourself. You've destroyed relationships, caused catastrophic fallout altered other people's entire futures and you feel infinitesimally small like failure is the very beat of your heart and you are nothing but a constant source of disappointment 
you see the innumerable ways that somebody else would be more qualified to do what you're doing. You think that the people in your life would be better off without you. Perhaps you're living in a mixture of both. The victim of somebody else's sins and the perpetrator of sins against others. And you just wish that you could crawl out of your own skin and, and disappear into a cave. And that's why Paul's next words are so incredibly important for you. So incredibly important for me. Beginning in verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He prays that the eyes of their hearts may be opened, that they may know exactly who they are in Jesus. He doesn't stop thanking God for them. He lifts them up in gratitude toward God and he begs God, God, open their eyes. Show them who they are. Show them the riches and the glory and the immeasurable greatness of their inheritance and your power. Show them that their worth is McDuck money. Satan wants nothing more than to push you down deeper into your own feelings of worthlessness. He wants to destroy your confidence. He wants to crush your identity. He wants you to be identified by sin. Your sin and the sins of others. He wants you to be constantly crushed under the pressure of the weight that comes with comparing yourself to other people. Do not let him have that victory any longer. In Jesus, Paul says, you are worth five multiplugillion, nine impossibilion, seven fantastica trillion dollars, and 16 cents. And nothing can ever take that from you. From eternity past to eternity future, you always have been and always will be worthful. But like every inheritance, this one must be claimed. Christ offers it to you for free, but you have to claim it. If you've never surrendered your life to him, asking him to adopt you as his son or his daughter, that is the first step. 
This is more than just believing in his existence or acknowledging some facts about him or performing some religious rituals. This is saying to him, I need you to cover my sins, to, to rescue me from them. I need you to be in control of my life. I need to devote myself to you. I need you, I need you to adopt me as your child to help me walk with you for the rest of my life. And if you've never done that, I'm begging you, don't miss your inheritance. And if you're like me, and you've already done that, but you've allowed the pains of this world to take your eyes off the truth, then let this be the day that you see it once more. That you reach out and you grab hold of your identity in Jesus. It hasn't gone anywhere, nor will it ever in the future. The inheritance doesn't change. But sometimes the eyes of your heart are closed. Let's open our eyes together that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for showing us the truth of who we are in Jesus, for displaying in such clear terms how much we meant to you even before we were ever born. And God, I pray for any person who has never come to a place where, where they've surrendered to you, given their life to you, claiming their inheritance. God, I pray that if there are any here today or, or, or watching online or listening on the podcast right now that have never claimed their inheritance in Jesus, God, I pray that you would bring them to a place of surrender and repentance. Asking you to forgive them of the penalty of their sins. Turning from those sins and giving themselves to you. And asking you to be the Lord of their life. And God, I pray for all the people who are like me. Who know or should know who they are in Jesus. And yet the voices of the lies have become more and more powerful for whatever reason. I pray that you would help us to shut out the lies. Open our eyes to the truth of who we are in you and see just how worthful we are, and to walk in that, to experience the fullness of that. God, as we sing this closing song, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do whatever work you mean to do in each of our hearts, calling us to whatever decisions we need to make, calling us to obey in whatever ways we need to obey, perhaps just calling us in love, wrapping your arms around us and showing us the immeasurable riches of your grace and mercy in this very moment. Do whatever work you need to do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we will close in worship.